Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Tuesday, June 7, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for our 31st episode is Nicholas Benish, who is speaking to us from Tokyo, where it is now, in fact, June 8th. So good morning, Ohio Gazamas, Nick, and welcome to the Hale Report. Ohio Gazamas, good morning. How are you? Very well. It's a beautiful day here in Chicago. I'm uh, really, really pleased to be invited. I'm honored to be invited to be interviewed by you. It's been a while since we, we talked. This is wonderful. It is wonderful. And you were one of the first EconView experts. Um, when we first started the company, and we've known each other now for quite some time. But, you know, doing these podcasts, I get to ask questions that I didn't get to ask you in person. So I'd like to tell um, our listeners a little bit about you. Mr. Benish, or should I say Benish Sensei, studied Japanese at Stanford, Sophia, and Keio as the Japanese miracle began to unfold in the mid-70s, just before another guest on one of our podcasts, Ezra Vogel, wrote his famous book, Japan is Number One. He served as Senior Managing Director of Kamakura Corporation, a risk management firm, and then founded his own advisory firm, JTP Corporation, an M&A corporate governance firm. In addition, he is CEO of a nonprofit, the Board Director Training Institute of Japan. Nick will be explaining a bit more about BDTI later in our podcast. What is important to know? about Mr. Benish is that he has kickstarted the field of corporate governance in Japan. He has advised the Japanese government and corporate world about how to bring their governance rules up to date to meet the standards of global investors. We will have a lot to discuss. Nick, I always ask my guests how they first got interested in what became their life's work. I know you studied Japanese, but what led you to decide to do that? And how did that lead to you spending most of your life in Japan? So that's, a, that's a, a hard question for me to answer because I guess I first have to define my, my, my life's work was, and it, it spanned all sorts of things. And every 12 years or so, I sort of get interested in something else and do something else. So that's, uh, I, I suppose you could say my, my life's work is figuring out and trying to help Japan in my own way because it's become my second home or now actually my sort of my first home. Right. I'm going to probably die, die here. My, my kids are all more Japanese than American. My wife is uh, Japanese. So that's my life's work, I suppose, is my family most of all. And uh, it, my uh, life, life's work over the last 20 years has, on an escalating basis, turned into improving corporate governance, including uh, sustainability issues as well. So how did I get into this? Uh, well, it was through the door of Japan. Obviously, and the uh, I guess the quick answer would be I was waitlisted at Harvard and didn't get in, so I uh, went to Stanford instead, where they were easier to get into uh, or less uh, uh, restrictive, I suppose. And uh, uh, in my uh, freshman year, we took a course. Everybody had to take a course on uh, Western civilization history, and they give you a thousand-page book to read, and there were two pages on the Meiji Restoration. 
uh, and Japan's rapid uh, industrialization uh, starting in 1860 or so. Right. Uh, and I was fascinated. Exactly, the Meiji Shin. And uh, uh, I was fascinated, of course, by the fact that Japan was not colonized, but more so by the fact that it was the only country at that point in time, this is, you know, 1974, uh, uh, outside of Europe and the Americas that had uh, managed to become a modern industrialized nation, uh, really, of, of any country. You know, that was before Korea took off. And I thought, uh, you know, I thought if people could understand, if I could understand the sort of secrets to their success, you know, or were they, why were they able to do this despite not coming from Western civilization roots? Uh, and so rapidly, because at that point, Japan was growing at 10% per year and that sort of thing. Uh, you could sort of help these other countries. And I was very interested in, in improving, you know, pollution. I had wide-eyed, idealistic goals at that point in my life. And, uh, you know, sort of helping other countries like India and China was kind of important to me. Uh, and I, so I, I jumped into a graduate course on the economic history of Japan, uh, which I didn't belong in because I was just a freshman. And I was unsatisfied with reading Herman Kahn's uh, uh, The Japanese Miracle, this right. kind of book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was the precursor. Before the other books, uh, he predicted that Japan would become something big. And decided, I was very adventurous at that point in time, so I sort of went to all these countries immediately. And I immediately went to Japan after summer working on a, a freighter in South America. I, I jumped over to Japan to uh, uh, study at Sofia University and just got totally interested in, or you might say obsessed, with trying to learn this language. And one of the reasons for that was that in those days, very few foreigners were trying to learn a language. And uh, so they, you know, Japanese people sort of tell you, well, you know, our language is impossible for foreigners to learn. You know, you should just give up, go home kind of. We're, we're happy you're here. It's great. Can I, can, I, can I learn English from you? Can I study English from you? <laughs> but they didn't want to teach you Japanese so much because they thought it was impossible for you to learn anyway. And every time someone would say that, it would turn to more of a challenge to me to, oh, I'm going to learn this language, whatever it takes. And I've been doing that for, you know, ever since 50 odd years. Is that, a, is that a story that makes sense to anyone? I'm not sure it is. I've, I've become obsessed with learning and figuring out uh, Japan and then trying to, you know, later on, as I understood it, help the country I live in out uh, and do some good before I pass away. Well, you know, I remember as an exchange student there, when I would go up to somebody and speak Japanese, they would just look at me in amazement and not understand me because it was like I was on the wrong channel. <laughs> so you have to start out on the net, you know, so you give right. some kind of hint <laughs> to, to prepare them. So I, I know, know what you mean. You know, um, from your perch in Japan, I'm wondering if you could give us some insight into Japan's, because of the culture and the way the society works, some insight into their very successful management of COVID compared to many other countries in Asia. What makes that possible? Do you have some thoughts about that? Uh, sure. I, 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 I guess I do because I've been managing not to get COVID for the last two or three years. Right. Um, the, I, it's, uh, I think you would not be surprised by this at all, but it's mainly due to the fact that people are just very good about following rules here. Uh, you know, it's a bit like Germany in that sense. A rule is a rule and thou shalt follow it. Uh, or feel shame or the eyes of society on you if you don't. 
Uh, so, you know, as an example, it's not, not COVID, but people will always stop at red lights, you know, where the pedestrian light is, is red. Even if there's no cars within, you know, a, a kilometer looking either direction on the road, uh, they'll, because that sets an example for kids and they know that. Uh, and if somebody saw you, uh, now, of course, I break this rule myself half the time, so I, I shouldn't be talking, but most, most Japanese people, almost all do not, uh, People follow rules here. So if you tell them everybody should wear masks, try to do social distance things, you should not meet so much, they actually listen to that until the policy is is uh, is changed. And of course, the bad side of that is if they change the policy too quickly, then we get a resurgence of COVID. So right. uh, they play by the rules. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. You know, um, my two of my kids went to Japanese school here in Chicago, and my son will do that exact thing after nine years in Japanese school, he will stand at the corner wow. with a red light. He got socialized on Saturday. He learned better than me. Boy, he's, <laughs> he's, a, he's an upstanding citizen. Well, he started when he was five. So I think it. <laughs> right. you, you, you were in America then. So also in the news, something I wanted to ask you, I was curious about, what do you think about the new prime minister, Kishida Fubio, and his new capitalism? And that's that I think that's a good segue into corporate Japan and what your activities are there. I'm not quite sure what to think of. I think he has good intentions. I think he's identified the politically upside issue before the election, which is talking about, you know, something different from what seems to be something different from what Prime Minister Abe was talking about, which to some people sounded a little bit too harsh or aggressive or fast or uh, Western almost. And and also it putting a finger on the the bumpaiditsu, you know, the, the distribution of profits issue that we have the same problem in the US, by the way. Uh, corporate profits uh, have been increasingly distributed to shareholders or withheld within the company, but not given back to employees in the, in the form of salary increases. So the proportion of corporate profits going to employees is, uh, you know, been sluggish for many, many years. Uh, people haven't received on a, on a adjusted, you know, for inflation basis, real income raises for, for years here, basically. So he's directing attention to that. And I think that's probably because it's politically the way to get elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more palatable. Uh, I, but the problem is, uh, you know, just trying to do something different from Abed and appealing to that, you know, employee-centric uh, mindset of Japanese organizations and employees uh, does not solve the fundamental economic problems that Japan is really up against over the next, you know, 20 years, which is to say it has to increase its productivity, its economic total factor of productivity. And uh, it's okay if you can do that by paying more out in just as distribution percentage to employees who are more productivity because they're more productive, uh, that would be great. But he's not focusing, uh, in other words, the, the, the idea of this new capitalism doesn't is a sort of an empty box, which doesn't have anything in that toolkit to improve actual economic productivity. I see. Uh, so you've, he's collected a, a group of, I should say, and I don't mean this badly, but, but it's a motley group of, of fine, upstanding people uh, spanning from the Keidan Ren to from the Labor Federation to uh, Shibasawa Ken and you know, other fine folks on the investment side. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of uh, coherence, it seems to me, and they haven't focused on anything specific as to what they're actually going to do 
to increase productivity at the same time as they raise wages. So it's great, great goal to raise wages, but you need ways to do that. And in the Abe formulation, which largely came from things that uh, we can discuss later on that, that I sort of seeded um, and the ACCJ and then I seeded with the governance code, um, at least had a, a vision for that, even though uh, not all of it was put in place in, in, in a, a hard format uh, and as much as they, they might have done. We're not quite in sync. There's more rhetoric than reality. But now we have a rhetoric about distribution, but I, there's nothing to get it done by. Well, speaking of corporate profits and how they might be used, um, I consider you a kind of corporate prof- profit, <laughs> Nick, in terms of <laughs> Japan. And, you know, as far back as 2001, you wrote about the upcoming shareholder revolution in Japan. Back in 2010, you began to actively work with Japanese officials close to the prime minister to create a corporate governance code. And my question to you about all this, it was all of this a, a form of gaiatsu or foreign pressure. Did it take a foreigner to kickstart this process that you began? And why, how have you played such a unique role in Japanese corporate history? It's fascinating to me. Well, I think the fact that I was able to do the things I did or was willing to do them despite the pain of not getting paid to do them and you know, spending really, I sort of worked for nothing for the last 10 years. If you take all my donations away from BDTI and, and the fact that I had no salary for four years and this sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, the, the whole American task force that I, I set up with 40 people to write a white paper for a growth strategy for Japan in 2010, which basically became a blueprint for economic structural reform. That was a year out of my life. Writing right, half the support and editing it and all this kind of stuff. You know how much time this stuff takes, even though, it's, of course, uh, many other people participate in the project. At the end of the day, the guy who proposes the white paper ends up doing half the work. So, you know, there I was late at nights at my that's office. That's a rule. That's a rule. Isn't it? I mean, that's just the way life works. <laughs> you know, you propose it, so about that. <laughs> you finish it, you get it done. And, uh, you know, late at night, I'd be there screaming out the window saying, ah, I can't bear this anymore. But um, the the... You know, who'd be willing to do that and uh, accept a foreigner in Japan because you, most Japanese people here would be so fearful of criticism for, you know, why do you think you're entitled to take the four or, uh, you know, isn't that a little bit too aggressive and people might disagree with it. And as you know, this is a society where people shy away from confrontation because there are, we're very consensus oriented, which is a good thing and, and has many good aspects. So I'm not criticizing that. Uh, but the downside of it is that people get very afraid of confrontation because it's so rare. Uh, when, it, when, when any kind of disagreement or confrontation, difference of views is, is very rare, it means when it does occur, it has the much greater chance of sort of blowing up and destroying the human nexus or trust in each other. And people are quite afraid of that. So we don't have enough debate about these topics uh, in policy circles. That's one of the things that happens. Another thing that happens is that Japan has a, a wonderful uh, base of academics who put out very good research and they're very high level, but then it proceeds as a government, uh, the bureaucracy only selectively uses uh, their analysis or their skills up to the point that it wants to for each siloed bureaucracy's own purposes. 
So it's the, this great analytical capability tends to be chronically underutilized. And at the same time, we have very few think tanks in the Brookings Institution or the Hoover Institution, this kind of place, that produce uh, deep analysis uh, for policy and, and, you know, concrete policy statements. So one of the things I've discovered that uh, did allow me to get a lot done was that um, it wasn't gaiatsu in the sense of Japan or the Japanese government feel pressure from a government, from the U.S. government. That was that was not the, at the base of any of the stuff that I've got done, really. I, can, I think I can honestly say that. Um, but uh, when you come up with uh, what I call thought leadership in Japan based on replete, well-done academic analysis by a respected professor, you know, that's what we did with the growth strategy project at the ACCA in 2010. Professor Fukao did all the analysis, and we based our uh, concrete policy uh, uh, proposals on that. Uh, you are very powerful in Japan simply because of the vacuum of other concrete policy proposals to compete with. And, the, and so, and so you, if you can then get to legislators, not the bureaucrats, because the bureaucrats tend to filter out what's not on their game plan, or they don't think the politicians will accept, that's a safe way to get promoted. Uh, if you then can get to the legislators with something concrete, they jump at it if it's well substantiated because they're not getting that from the bureaucracy. And so it's, uh, in that sense, it's a, it's a, you might even say it's a easy, easy pickings if you can just do the analysis and come up with good proposals. That, that doesn't mean to say it was easy work. It's uh, easier to get uh, a proposal rolling here, I suppose, than it would be in the United States because you'd be competing in the U.S. with so many other policy experts and wonks and think tanks and people, you know, funded by uh, political contributions. You stand out. Sort of you definitely, for sure. So um, in 2009, you founded BDTI in Tokyo. And as I understand the function uh, of BDTI, it's to train current and prospective board members so that they understand what their role, their responsibility, their function is. And by the way, I understand 32% of your graduates are women, which I found interesting. So can you tell us more about BDTI? Sure. Uh, well, just to be correct uh, and accurate, 32% of the people who attended our open to the public programs last year were women. Okay. We also do programs for corporations. So, you know, if a certain corporation asks us to uh, train their directors or directors of subsidiaries and this kind of thing, if most of the people are men, then I can't put that in the equation. But the people right. who, you know, uh, apply openly, yeah, 32% were women. There is a strong interest in women. Yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. uh, and they uh, they participate very actively. It's it's uh, much appreciated. It stands for uh, the Board Director Training Institute of Japan. And what we are is a very special kind of nonprofit. Uh, really, you know, the, the, the common phrase now, a company with a purpose. Well, if there ever was a company with a purpose, it's the kind of nonprofit that we are. Uh, it's a public interest nonprofit, which is say, not only are you not making a profit and you're not distributing dividends back to anyone, there's no claim on dividends that any of the members or quasi-shareholders have, uh, but your activities are those which the government uh, has certified as being good for the public interest. They serve the public interest, but they're generally undersupplied by the market. And uh, that requires a, a rather heavy, uh, burdensome uh, certification process. I got turned down literally three times before going back with a bunch of memos and 
all sorts of signatures from lots of people and, and et cetera, et cetera, uh, to, to get certified. But it's very important to me that the government acknowledge at that time, for the first time in history, that governance-related training or directorship training was something good for society. This is a country back in, you know, 2011 when we were applying, um, 2010, yeah, um, that didn't have a corporate governance code. Uh, the government had made really very few statements about governance outside of, you know, promulgating the corporate law. That's about it. Um, and, you know, the idea, concept of director training was very nascent. There were people providing it, but not nearly enough. It wasn't common. Uh, and of course, most boards, as you know, were largely, you know, if not wholly internally promoted executives. There, there were very few outside directors back then. Uh, so everybody thought, well, since I'm an internally promoted executive, if I was chosen to be promoted to the board, I must be qualified, right? So why do I need training? Um, so at that point, though, you were starting to see more outside directors coming into uh, boards, and they were often, you know, friends of the president, not really independent. And I thought, gosh, this is this is an awful trend. If this continues, then the whole concept of an independent director and its role in corporate governance be, be, be misunderstood by Japanese people because they'll see all these, you know, friends of the president sort of agreeing with him as yes men, and they'll say, well, you know, what what good is outside directors? What good is independence? Uh, it's if anything, it makes things worse because it allows the president to do whatever he wants. Um, so uh, I, I was sort of alarmed by that, and we thought we need to train both internal and external uh, board members. Uh, and also before, if possible, they, they join boards. I mean, that's really the time to do the training. Is before you ask your shareholders to vote for these people, show them that they actually have the base skills and knowledge of corporate law, governance practice, securities law, uh, finance, et cetera, reading financial statements uh, that qualify them to be uh, board members. You know, you wouldn't get on a airline if uh, the, the pilot said he was still doing on-the-job training uh, and, and hadn't got his license yet. Uh, similarly, you, know, you shouldn't be buying stock in a company where the, the directors aren't of sufficient quality. Uh, so we started this up uh, on the thought that uh, there would be demand increasing as outside directors increased. And it's been very slow at first until the corporate governance code got started. Um, you know, to tell, tell, to tell what you do, I, I guess I should tell a bit more about what we do. Um, we have a uh, introductory day-long intensive course uh, on uh, governance theory and practice and securities law, uh, corporate law, uh, a lot of time spent on finance and meeting financial statements. And then we have some uh, case studies we go over of Japanese companies like Hitachi or uh, other names that should remain unmentioned because they're not the success stories. Um, and then we have a advanced course that's really tuned to the needs of uh, uh, outside directors, but also uh, we allow internal executives to join that so they understand how outside independent directors think and should be thinking and how to deal with them because there are increasingly many of them on Japanese boards now. And these are all very interactive, small number of courses. So there's a lot of discussion and room for asking questions and, and sort of becoming more comfortable with these emerging new practices in Japan, which is very important that people deeply understand them and, and, and accept them as the logic of why they exist, as opposed to just, uh, uh, you know, stepping through the hoops by, by road. And then we have e-learning, uh, uh, four different modules on uh, all sorts of different topics that are essential, like corporate law and securities law. Uh, and then we give a bunch of seminars and webinars, uh, say, every month and a half. Nowadays, they're free because everything's gone to the 
to the you know, right. teams. It's hard to it's charge. The, yeah. yeah, it's hard to charge. Um, and, uh, we did just did this one uh, uh, last week on on where are they? The, the folks at Hitachi who set up their uh, human capital and uh, transformation uh, policies over the last eight nine years, particularly with respect to HR management. Uh, explain what they did and why they did it. And it was, that's fascinating. So we're going to translate that into Japanese and, uh, you know, allow other Japanese companies to learn from the leadership stance that Hitachi took. So that's the kind of thing we do. We also sort of proselytize, in, mm-hmm. in proselytize, should I say, or do missionary work by giving speeches, events like this, or uh, I'm asked to give speeches to institutional investors and that sort of thing, uh, both foreign and Japanese. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and The Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Yeah, I saw a very interesting article you wrote in the Financial Times and explaining a special feature of Japanese stock ownership. And specifically, if you own 5% or more of a company's shares, that you have to declare whether or not you're going to be a passive or an active investor. I find that really interesting. And, and it just seems that everything you're talking about, there's a kind of corporate defensiveness that you're pushing up against. Is that a good way to describe it? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's been the story for the story of my life for the last 22 plus years. Uh, Japan has, if you look at the glass half full, made this difficult transition during that period two-thirds of the transition, a half the transition, uh, from a extremely, uh, you know, internal management-run board type of governments with no outsiders and uh, very few firm corporate governance practices. And it was just, it was just you know, the corporate law we looked at as guidance for governance uh, to a much more modern one. Uh, we're not entirely through the tunnel, as I as I said, but uh, when you consider that that transition was made in the United States, you know, really over the last forty or fifty years, um, it's been compressed by virtue of the fact that Japan's been able to sort of look to other jurisdictions for things to do and things to copy or modify or adopt or practices to adopt. Uh, you know, learn from other countries as it has in the past as well. Uh, but you, we've always been against uh, running up against and trying to speed this up uh, the, the sort of the corporate lobby, as it were. Um, yeah, it's the Keidanren. And the Keidanren is uh, unfortunately has some very smart people and some very leading companies in it, but they are by their own admission, if you talk to their office, you know, sort of, you know, we're held back for God's sake. You got to understand this, Nick. We're held back by the fact that, you know, the, the lowest common denominator, sort of the Rust Bowl companies, uh, that don't have uh, as much growth potential in the future want us to to go slower, even though we, of course, you know, mm-hmm. in the office think we should move faster in certain things. So they have their own, you know, discussions. And uh, but they've made a lot of progress. I give them credit for that in catching up uh, and realizing that uh, you know the future is here. Um, so no, I, I think I'm getting increasingly optimistic that Japan will will get out of this tunnel. So what percentage is this being driven by foreign investors as well? And are they support helping to support you because they have different standards that they're used to? And what percentage of the uh, Japanese stock market is owned by non-Japanese investors? Sure. Well, it's about, it's about 30%. Uh, 
mm-hmm. maybe a little bit less now uh, because it's been coming down over the last few years, but uh, you know, 28% something like that now. And the, so it's a large percentage. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you'd have significant. To, significant. Yeah. yeah. And um, if allegiant holdings, what we call allegiant holdings, it used to be called cross shareholdings, except that they're not all cross. Some of them are one way. A lot of them are one way. Uh, as since they're coming down a lot, uh, the prominence of the neutral shareholder, who is a Japanese institutional mutual fund or institutional investor pension fund uh, or a foreign investor, uh, will increase, and that will simply accelerate the pressure on companies and perceived pressure that those are our shareholders now who are the majority and can vote us out of office. In the end of the day, um, will increase. So those, those are now inevitable trends that are underway. There's a lot of pressure to decrease allegiant shareholdings. Um, and uh, now is the time when things will probably accelerate. What's, what's happening in the market is uh, the, the, the sort of effect of all these policy changes in governance has been to increase the disparity of, as I say, so the leaders from the laggards. There's, you know, about... Uh, you could look at various numbers, but uh, you know, two thirds of the increase in ROE, if you look at in total market E, two thirds of the contribution to the increase in that ROE over the last eight years or so, ten years or so, uh, has been contributed by thirty percent or so of firms. So a, a minority of firms are doing well, outperforming a majority of firms. That is what's happening. And even the ones that are outperforming are not leveraged enough. So they could increase their uh, performance by leveraging just, just a bit. You know, Often they're not leveraged at all, have too much cash in the first place. Um, even more, so there's more growth there. But the, the laggards are the ones you worry about that uh, will slowly shrink into less portion of the market. They will slowly shrink themselves down from 60% to 30%, et cetera, over time. And that's uh, a little sad. That is very sad for their employees, uh, not to take Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida's line. But if you really care about employees, you should be thinking about the productivity and the growth potential of those companies and trying to increase it and then increase wages. Because then you have a base to stand and money to pay out of the, the wages from. That's sustainable. Yeah, it's sustainable, that's sustainable, exactly. That's right. You know, um, one thing I learned from you before, Nick, that I found fascinating and and that most people do not understand about the Tokyo Stock Exchange is that the majority shareholder of many Japanese companies is the Bank of Japan, the Central Bank of Japan Trust. Um, How does that work? And as I, uh, I think what you told me before is that they are definitely passive shareholders. So if the largest shareholder is passive, that seems to have pretty large implications for the management. Well, that's absolutely right. That is a a global problem as well, if you think of it sort of in the writ large sense, uh, because passive fund management is, uh, not to exaggerate too much, but sort of taking over the markets, taking over the world. You've got more, even amongst mutual funds and ETFs in the U.S., I'm just reading an article right now, just in that sector alone in the United States, 16% of that money is now passively managed as opposed to 14% actively managed. And so that's not, that's before you look at the direct institutional index linked money, 
So a very large proportion of, of the money in the United States as well and in Japan is passively managed in the first place. And now you have the, ET, the, the BOJ coming in over the last X years, uh, buying equities uh, in a, if you ask me, excuse me, f- fool's errand of quantitative easing uh, through equity holdings um, in a very large percentage of the market. Um, and that is funneled through via ETFs that they are you know, largely set up for the BOJ to invest in or already exists. And so you're talking about, again, a passive fund, an ETF that doesn't expend much money at all in proactive uh, investigation of profitability, governance, strategy, uh, engagement with those companies, proxy voting, all these things which are governance-related issues. Um, and it hollows out the governance upside or the governance uh, function of, of the market, uh, even more than is already existing due to the emergence of passive funds, which don't do much more than the BOJ does. Um, so I, I'm speaking out of school and some people would criticize me, but that, that has been the case, I think, uh, abroad as well, uh, it's also the case here in Japan. And so that's a great concern to me. Uh, you were talking about leaders and one of the leaders in the Japanese corporate world, uh, worldwide, uh, definitely is Sony. And, uh, yesterday it was announced that the, the former chairman, uh, Ide Nobuyuki, had passed away. How did Sony fit into the biosphere of Japanese firms? Were they atypical as they appeared to be? Um, like Apple, I believe Sony is the largest market cap company. Is that still right? I'm not sure. Yeah, but if it is at 90 billion, it's still a tenth of the market cap of Apple, for example. Uh, no, it's not the, the highest market cap company. Although over the last, last couple of years, it has come back uh, mm-hmm. from from the not the near dead, but the from a much lower level of stock price, it has resurged by uh, marginally focusing its strategy and succeeding in a number of areas. Uh, it has uh, sold off certain things like Vio, the computer, uh, um, it, but it still holds too many different businesses, you know, in fact, we even discussed Sony in our, uh, uh, our course because of that, uh, uh, you know, Sony has, uh, insurance and a bank and, uh, some you know, uh, non-life insurance and it makes, it still makes televisions and sensors business is very successful actually. Um, in addition to the PlayStation and all the, uh, the movie businesses, uh, and now talking about getting into cars together, I think with Honda. So it, this is a very, very, uh, on the good side, diverse, on, on the bad side, sort of mm, non-synergistic, not so much synergy, conglomerate type of business portfolio. And the question is, can they really be excellent in all of those areas at the same time? Or is it time to divest even more of the financial empire? Uh, one of the interesting things about Sony is that back in the day when it was set up by Mr. Morita, uh, who, who I met during certain transactions when I was at, at Morgan. Um, uh, you know, Sony actually was similar to Apple in the sense that you had this very strong-willed visionary leader. Founder, yeah. Founder mm-hmm. who set it up. 
who did kind of what he wanted to do. He, he was the God there. Uh, and um, that's why I had to meet with him. Uh, uh, but then when he left, you know, I think, you know, that, that leaves a vacuum in a company like that. And he left after he had bought all these things that he wanted in the empire. Like he's the guy who started out the venture into the financial area. He was in Newark and saw Prudential in this big building and said, I want, yeah, I want a life insurance company too, if, if they can do that. Um, and that's why uh, Sony entered the financial uh, sector. Uh, that's fine, you know, as as far as he took it, but continuing on and finding synergy between these businesses became harder than I think Sony was able to quite deal with. Uh, mm-hmm. And you may be wondering about, you know, how much they, they you know, why have they not kept up with Apple, say? Why did why have they not developed these? The innovation questions, innovation. right? Well, one mm-hmm. answer to that would be that PlayStation was uh, a blowout product that has drawn in a lot of uh, profits for Sony over the years and still is. So I'm not sure. It's not like the iPhone, of course, but uh, I don't, I'm not sure they've lost their pizzazz. Uh, Sony's always been an extremely rigorously well, well-managed company in general. I think my major question is the board has to whittle down and focus the strategy even more on the most important core businesses that they can truly succeed in and, and generate more of those blowout hit products. You know, um, I wanted to, to ask you about ESG, and uh, I talked to uh, Rick Katz about innovation in Japan and did a podcast with him. And uh, he feels that there's going to be a resurgence of innovation in Japan and that it will be tied to ESG. Uh, with energy costs rising, though, it seems to me just in the past few months that it, that has reached a crossroads. It's going to be very difficult to balance environmental, social governance. Um, you've been mostly focused on governance, but how does this look? You, uh, can you tell us about planet, I think it's Vilken? Is that uh, the planet that you invented? Right. <laughs> I thought that was very amusing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I couldn't call it Vulcan for obvious reasons, but uh, right. I wanted to uh, bring to mind a imaginary civilization that was sort of more logical than than we, the human race, has been for the last <laughs> forty years or so. Um, the uh, ESG, okay, the the promise. I mean, I've always been interested in topics like that. Uh, way way back when I was in you know high school, I was very concerned about you know, pollution and uh, range of, a whole range of sort of externalized risks, as they say in economics, uh, it, the damage caused by companies that the company doesn't have to clean up, uh, you know, whether it's the credit crisis or uh, the financial crisis or the opioid crisis or the tobacco killing a lot of people early or asbestos or whatever it may be. These are all externalized risks and that kind of thing. So it was pollution. And, um, you know, to me, the promise of ESG is that we would, uh, as a society, uh, through that lens, uh, address those those issues, um, and that that's the dream. And it's on the one hand it, it, wonderful in a sense that there's been so much interest focused on ESG in the last ten years or so, uh, including in Japan. I mean, it used to be back in 2010, I I, I used to have to explain to people what the letters meant in our director training courses, E means this, S means social, et cetera. Uh, and now it's on everybody's lips. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the, uh, 
the risk of uh, ESG sort of taking over uh, the rhetoric is that we're, I think, missing fundamental defects in capital markets and corporate legal structure that will make it impossible for ESG alone to solve the problems that we're up against now. Um, I, I don't know if I'm, am I diverging from your question? No, that's, no, that's, it's, it's really, really helpful. And, you know, it seems to me that you, you said yourself in something you wrote that you're not a tree hugging idealist, but you, it appears to me that you yourself try to balance ESG with also promoting profit making on the part of corporations, which will allow them to have money to become innovative and to distribute to employees and shareholders. Right. So it, it seems to me that your approach is very balanced. Well, the, you're, you're not sustainable unless you make money. If you, if Converse, if you people lose money, you're, 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 <laughs> we have to tell people that, you know, you gotta be a good company in terms of ESG, but also make a high enough ROE, ROI, or you will not be sustainable even though you think you are. Um, but the uh, I think you were getting at the uh, energy issues of Japan and innovation, and I right. uh, diverged. Mm-hmm. I apologize for that. Um, no, the yeah, you're right. I think you're you're very astute. Japan is up against a rock and a hard place now. If we're back in a world of uh, higher oil prices and having to, you know, rejigger restart half of our nuclear plants. Um, maybe that's just inevitable. I think the the good news could be that it, it could result in much more investment in energy innovation, uh, you know, solar, wind, geothermal, I think has extreme potential in volcanic-ridden Japan, which right. the government doesn't seem to take much as much interest in as a should and their R and D sense is sort of finding ways to tap into that. I understand there's a lot of energy down, you know, when you get down to 500 feet or a thousand feet below the surface of the earth, uh, even without volcanic action, they can be tapped. So if, it, if we could tap into those things in Japan with more innovation, it'd be wonderful. Um, I did listen to the podcast with Rick. Uh, he was a good friend and I thought it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And he made a lot of astute comments uh, there is uh, emerging in Japan, just as he says, uh, irrespective of government policy, a new generation of uh, entrepreneurship geared, uh, entrepreneurship eager young people who don't just want to go to the boring old large company their parents went to, but are willing to take personal risk in their career choices and shift from job to job and, 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 and you know, increase their skills as they job hop, who are working in smaller companies now, venture capital financed or own capital financed, smaller companies doing innovative new business models and that sort of thing, which is much different. This is much different from 15 years ago. There was not nearly as much interest in colleges and among young people in doing that sort of thing, willingness to do that sort of thing uh, 10 or 15 years ago. My son was part of that wave, so I, I kind of know about it quite well. Uh, and this, is, this speaks well for the future of Japan, but it's not on the scale of, you know, a Silicon Valley or a, you know, the area off of, of Harvard near Cambridge uh, that invests in venture capital. We, uh, we have a long way to go still to get that far. Uh, and, and, it, and in large part, I think, you know, larger companies have to find a way to get involved in the process and be more flexible in funding it 
and then taking on buying these firms, uh, merging them, using the people and, 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 and keeping them motivated, even though they're part of a larger enterprise, which gets more boring and less exciting, right? Um, that's, one of, that's the real uh, challenge of Japan is the, the established labor market is out of sync with the emerging one, which is caused by generational shift. Yeah, and there's just not enough young people too. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, that's that's a key issue. And I'm wondering what you see as the role of demographics playing longer term in the Japanese stock market. You know, in the 90s, the market crashed. It went from like 39,000 to 20,000. It's now up at about only 27,000 after all those decades. But in a way, I've been wondering... Um, did Japan have a softer landing than the rest of us in these um, demographically deprived countries are going to have? Because the rest of the world during the time that time had plenty of labor and interest rates were low and so forth, but the rest of the world is going to have a tougher time uh, of it. So I'm just wondering how you see the Japan's demographic challenge and how that affects financial markets. Really well phrased question, the and quite difficult to answer because, on the one hand, you know Japan almost needs a harder landing than the existing labor framework. You know, and overemployment at larger companies is going to allow them, in order to sort of create the kind of changes that you and I are and, and Rick is hoping to envision for Japan in the future. Uh, uh, it might a lot more job shifting. People uh, improving their skills because job security no longer is tied to the company. It's not no longer a membership club that you, you get promoted in sort of automatically to some extent, but it becomes something where your job security comes from your own confidence and your own skills. That's the kind of market we are slowly trending into with so-called job data types of employment. And young people have taken it for granted that that's, that's the, you know, they've accepted from day one nowadays that that's where the world is going, but older people have not. Um, so, you know, a, a shock to the system actually would sort of speed up that process. It would be good and might cause the government to change the labor law to make it higher to easier to hire and fire people, uh, to be, to be blunt about it, but that, that would help a lot. Uh, even without that though, that change in the younger generation is already, you know, that, that, uh, horse has left the gate, uh, in their minds. They, they don't. Mind as much. I don't want to say that mind. They don't mind being fired, of course, but uh, they accept the fact that job turnover will happen much more than older people do, um, and it's underway. Um, how will Japan deal with this demographic challenge? Well, first of all, it's an example for the future for other countries, right? Because it's hitting the demographic wall. It has hit it already years ago, and we're following. We've been <laughs> shrinking for years now, right? And. Mm -hmm. uh, the big test for Japan is whether it can accept and proactively design a policy to bring on many more foreigners. Immigration. Immigration, right. The, mm -hmm. uh, the taboo topic. The, the, the taboo topic, which they're trying to do under, you know, behind the scenes, mm -hmm. under the, the undergrowth in an unseen way, they are doing it already. The government mm -hmm. is well aware of this and is doing it by letting on more foreigners in ways they can, you know, either as trainees or in, in improving the, uh, the ease with which you can get permanent residence and this sort of thing. And in fact, one of my employees is getting 
permanent residence here in Japan now. He's from India. And um, so the system is getting gradually much better in kind of less visible ways, you might say. But what the government really needs to do is kind of come out of the shadows and make this a policy that we are going to increase for skilled people vastly the number of new people who are allowed into Japan. Um, they've, they've done this halfway. They've done this halfway, but an even greater uh, commitment to training those people to be uh, plug compatible with social Japan. This is what's really necessary so that you don't have Indian or Chinese or Armenian or American people uh, sort of breaking the rules at the traffic crossing, <laughs> not putting out right. their garbage on time, uh, not understanding the rules of society, just in general as being a, a quasi-citizen here. Um, that's the kind of thing which will shock society into a backlash and prevent immigration policies and stop them uh, before they get started. And of started. course, COVID did that. COVID stopped everything in its COVID, tracks. That's, that's true. That's right. Um, and so uh, what uh, certain people have been arguing uh, for years is that the government has to be much more proactive with its immigration policy. Um and outspoken, but it's unwilling to do so, uh, so far, given conservative elements of society. Uh, and, and so that's a specific problem that Japan has, that other countries don't have as much of because of the homogeneity of its social fabric. Uh, so it's a really, a really big uh, litmus test. But I think the push has kind of come to shove because it's getting to the point where the labor market here is so tight. Uh, it is very hard for small places like us to hire uh, skilled staff and, you know, the amount you have to pay them is coming up and then they, they will quit, you know, the minute they get some other job that they, they, uh, they want to do more, even though you're paying them something more than market price already. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, very difficult as an employer right now. And that, uh, is a, a big extreme, uh, risk factor for, of course, innovation because, you know, those best people have a lot of, Job opportunities nowadays. Now, I see this, by the way, happening worldwide. And this isn't just a, US, a Japan problem. Uh, here I am, we are developing data, uh, very, very uh, large time series uh, databases uh, of governance and uh, corporate disclosure data that go back 10 years and allow for extreme uh, uh, high level AI and quantitative analysis by quantitative uh, fund managers and that sort of thing. Uh, um, and when you when you look for all these companies to target, there are an extreme number of these hedge funds and quantitative fund managers now around the world. But a lot of the people who are the quants, so-called an analysis folks working at them, they will all work less than a year and a half, six months, five months at that company, which means they're job hopping from company to company because they're getting paid more by the next guy every six months or every year or so. Uh, extreme uh, competition for this kind of staff is taking place now. Can Japan keep up with that competition worldwide for staff? I don't know. That's a big question mark. Right. So just one of the challenges. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. You have such an amazing perch and view, your viewpoint and um, what you've been able to see in, in Japan over this period of time. It's, it's, it's unique. Um, thank you. I have thank to say, I, I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have as well. How can they follow what you're doing in your work uh, going forward? Uh, well, I would encourage folks to come to our website uh, uh, in both English and Japanese. Uh, the English site, we have a blog and uh, lots of uh, articles or uh, you know 
webinars are listed there and the courses we we uh we give her there as are our supporters which include a large number of uh well-known foreign investors uh, largely active fund managers or activist fund managers uh very few passive uh, fund managers uh and i would say however the the dark side of that is that almost no uh japanese institutions really only two and they're not major so we have zero major japanese fund managers institutional investors as supporters of bdti you know notwithstanding the fact that everyone of them is talking about esg and sustainability and how committed they are to esg investment integration uh and the fact that governance the board is the the driver of this the, the bus so to speak of ESG, if it's going to work at all, it's driven by the board, which is uh, dependent on the level and quality board, which is dependent on training. Um, despite that, uh, we don't have any of these large institutions supporting us, even though we are a you know government anointed, certified public interest nonprofit. And I thought being of that status and having certified uh, status and being regulated by the government, we you know we're inspected every three four years, would make it a lot easier for Japanese institutions investors to support us. But they're not, and so uh, I guess I would put a shout out to you know ask your friendly institutional investor, so and so asset management or so and so sompo, whoever it may be, uh, you know, why aren't you supporting the director training in your own country to try to improve uh, governance and profitability and yes the payout ratio to employees in your own country uh, while you talk about ESG and plaster all over the subway uh, uh, cars and advertisements. Is there a BDTI in the United States? Something um, similar? Well, there's to a that national associate. Yeah, there's a national association mm -hmm. of corporate directors, which is quite active. Uh, you might ask, is that supported by investors? And the answer is no, because there's so much demand uh, from uh, directors or would be hoped to be directors, uh, and uh, it, they they pay for it anyway, or companies will pay for that it. They fund everything, um, and mm -hmm. there are also a lot of programs that uh, you know colleges and, and universities that you know like Stanford or I took the course at UCLA which is my alma mater from graduate school um, there there's a lot more director training off in the US uh, than there is here in Japan uh, in terms of, of, of numbers particularly post Enron Enron really is the one that that, that, that caused this mass uh, increase in such uh, uh, training what's interesting is to look at countries like Pakistan that uh, you know are trying to Prove themselves the IMF and the World Bank and this sort of thing and improve their capital market anyway, they require more than a week of director training by all directors on boards of public companies. Uh, it's really quite impressive uh, what they require and the quality of what they teach. Uh, and it's uh, sort of an example for the future for other countries, I think. Well, Nick Benish, you are sui generis <laughs> and uh, really fascinating to talk to you. And I hope to see you again in Tokyo or that you'll be able to come to Chicago sometime soon. I hope we can meet again soon, Lyric. Thank you very much for having me on. Not at all. And thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, our managing editor, Ying Zan, and our producer, Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. 